All right, Hosea chapter 9 is our reading for today. We'll be spending most of our time in this chapter this morning. Hosea chapter 9, as we begin to look at the road to restoration, the road to restoration, which Israel so desperately needed as they had run away and needed to be brought back home. But uh, we're going we're to begin looking at this first step in Hosea chapter 9. If you'd stand with me, please, uh, as you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Rejoice not, O Israel. Wow, what a way to start off a command. Instead of praising without ceasing and always being full of joy, he says, rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of Yahweh. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to Yahweh and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of Yahweh. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of Yahweh? For behold, they're going away from destruction, but Israel, Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Yahweh, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Do be seated. Well, after that incredible start to that chapter, 
you can see the picture there that is depicted for the northern kingdom is grim indeed. But let's take a step back to really where this book began and put ourselves in Hosea's place. Hosea, who took to himself at God's command, a wife who was uh, prone to unfaithfulness and she lived out that unfaithfulness and abandoned her husband and not just abandoned him in, you know, for just to go live on her own, but abandoned him pursuing other lovers and even having children with other lovers. So this, this picture of, of unfaithfulness and childbirth and children and all of that is coming back here into chapter 9, as you probably uh, picked up on. And think about this from Hosea's standpoint. To him, Gomer's unfaithfulness must have seemed utterly hopeless. How could he ever win her back? How could he, uh, uh, how could he respond to her in a proper way once she did return? And yet, as we found in the overture to this, this book, Hosea was able, by God's grace, to once again love his wayward wife. If God can enable a man to do this, how much more can he carry it out himself on our behalf? For we truly are no better than Gomer in our tendency to abandon our God, uh, not um, abandon him because he hasn't made himself known or because he hasn't done well by us, but the atrocity made all the greater because in the face of his love, in the face of his provision, in the face of his goodness, we abandon him uh, on a daily basis when we sin against him and others. But I want you to think about this here in the context of this book. We've been spending a lot of time looking at Israel's sins of idolatry and so on. And, and uh, those things are coming to bear here. There's a consequence for those things. I remember uh, many years ago when I was teaching in a middle school, disciplined a child uh, because he was unruly and would refuse to be obedient. And he'd been warned plenty of times and finally he was disciplined by being suspended. And his parents were not happy with the school administration at all that they had suspended uh, their son. And their argument was, God, God shows grace and has mercy and forgives us. Why can't you forgive our son? And the administration's correct answer was, it's not a matter of forgiveness. We're happy to forgive him. But there are consequences uh, that are clearly stated. We're listed, you know, listed in the student handbook. Everybody knows what they are. The consequences are there. It's part of the discipline process to train up people and to, and to build some character in the lives of our students. And if they refuse to obey, uh, they're not going to mess up everybody else's educational experience. They're going to be removed until they can figure it out. And it's called bearing the consequence. The other thing that they correctly said was, and besides that, when God forgives us for our sins, it's because Jesus died to pay the penalty for it. Not just a, well, it doesn't matter, it's okay, we'll let it go. And so that sort of ended that argument. I don't think they were still very happy, but nonetheless, 
that uh, that is all too often their attitude is all too often well you know we should just forgive and forget but God has built into his system the the, the necessary corrections to our rebellion and disobedience and wickedness and so the road to restoration when we're thinking about how do we restore how do we how do we get that back well most of the time when uh, in human relationships when we have struggles with others we basically want to jump over the consequences portion of things and just get back to the lovey-dovey do we not i mean after all Anybody here like discipline? If you do, we need to have a conversation later. Anybody here like conflict, like all that struggle? No, of course not. But unfortunately, because of sin, the necessity is that it, that sin has to be corrected and there needs to be judgment that is brought about. And this is not something that should have surprised Israel at all. We're going to see a couple of passages, at least this morning, from, from the Torah, from the books of Moses, where the Lord says, if you sin against me, if you rebel against me, here are the penalties. This is what's going to happen. It wasn't like he arbitrarily just said, okay, guys, you've rebelled against me one, you know, one too many times. Now I'm just smacking you upside the head. No, he had laid out in the system for obedience, there are blessings. For disobedience, there are curses. It was built into the DNA of their society. And Israel rejected it anyway. And my friends, you and I know full well, do we not? That from what God has said in his word, both Old and New Testaments, that if we walk in disobedience to him, there are going to be consequences. And, and here in chapter 9, as well as in some other passage, we're still in this larger section, right, the, that we've been working through, um, that runs all the way through chapter, into, into chapter 13. But here in chapter 9, the Lord really lays out what that judgment is going to look like. And as I hope you caught as we read through this just a few moments ago, it's a horrifying prospect. God is not playing games with us. He wasn't playing games with Israel, and he's not playing games with us. In the process of restoration, the very wages of our sins are often the things that God uses to soften our hearts toward repentance so that he would then show us mercy. So there's a, we're going to begin and only going to cover uh, this, first, this first portion, the first uh, step on the road to restoration, which would be judgment. The other two, which we'll look at uh, in subsequent weeks, are repentance and mercy but judgment repentance and mercy in that order that's our way to renewed communion with god now i want to say this um, uh, right here at the outset as well and i will repeat this later and throughout uh, this you know, little 
mini sub-series of our larger look at the book of Hosea. Remember who God is talking to. He's not talking to Assyria. He's not talking to Babylon. He's not talking to Egypt. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to his covenant people. To those who have been called out of darkness into light. Who, those who are, who, whom he delivered from the land of Egypt. So this is, this is not in the context of just a, a general admonition to the wicked. Think about it for a second. This is something that comes out a lot in the Psalms, but also in Ecclesiastes, where David, Solomon, and others are constantly looking around at the wicked and going, Lord, how come they're prospering? How come they're doing so well? How come they have all this power? How come they have all this wealth? How come they have all this influence? Why are they not, uh, why are they not experiencing affliction like I am, Lord? And the, 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 the psalmist uh, and, uh, and Solomon and so on often come to the conclusion, the, uh, rightly so, that um, the wicked have their day coming of judgment. This is the best it gets for them here in this life. But because there's a covenant relationship between God and his people, he takes us out on the porch and says, you run away, there's going to be consequences. Because of love and care that he wouldn't say that. I don't think Mike's dad would have said that to the neighbor kids. Because they weren't his. He said it to his own because of the relationship that was there. So here, God is speaking to a rebellious nation and said, let me tell you what the consequences are. This is what I'm going to use to get your attention. And it's sobering. Let it stand this morning as a warning to us when we're tempted to... Uh, either proverbially or literally run away uh, from God himself and obedience to his word. Um, you'll notice in the little note sheet that I have there in the bulletin, um, it says God's faithful uh, blank, and that's going to be judgment on an unfaithful people. Um, I don't know if you've ever really thought about putting the, the adjective faithful next to the word judgment. But there's a reason why I've done that here. And it springs back to what I've already mentioned here just a moment ago. That God is living up to his promises. He laid out the roadmap for how things were going to work in his relationship between himself and Israel. And he is faithfully carrying out the consequences uh, that were due them because of their disobedience. In fact, if God had not judged them, he could not be counted as a faithful God because those curses were part of his promises as well. It's not something we're comfortable thinking about necessarily that we often think about. But we have a God who disciplines every son whom he receives. 
So God is being faithful to them. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking around at some of our young people today. You don't have to give me an answer because I already know what the answer is. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you guys love it when you get punished? Oh, do you, do you stop and think when you're about to get punished, I am so thankful that mom and dad are being faithful to me. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. An unfaithful parent would let you go on your merry way and let you fall, stumble and fall, crash and burn with no one to help because for whatever reason, they're embarrassed or it's too much of an inconvenience or um, they just don't want to be bothered or uh, they decided that they're just going to let you do your own thing and, and figure it out. That's not love. That's not faithfulness. So the Lord is faithfully going to scourge uh, the wayward son, uh, Israel. So let's take a look then at chapter 9. And we're going to focus our attention there. Again, we'll jump off into a couple of other passages as well in this section. The first area of, of judgment that he lays out here is found in uh, verses 2 and 3. After he says, don't rejoice, uh, this is not a time for whooping it up here. You have been unfaithful to me. You've forsaken me. You've loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And so the threshing floor and wine that, well, you know, what's with the threshing floor? Well, it was a place of prosperity, blessing. This is where the harvest was brought in. It was often a place of feasting and celebration and so on. Uh, thankful for uh you know, what uh, had been brought in from the fields. And uh, in their wickedness, uh, they turned into places of, of uh, licentiousness and wickedness uh, that uh, was a total abomination before God. And so what does the Lord say now? You, you, you love going to the threshing floors and praising all the other gods out there. Um for their provision for you when it was me. So what's, what's the Lord going to do? He says, threshing floor and wine that shall not feed them. The new wine shall fail them. Their prosperity, the things that they look to, the thing they've been celebrating will be gone. If we walk in rebellion against the Lord, you can expect things to be difficult. If you remember from uh, our study of the book of Haggai, uh, some... Uh, some time ago. One of the things that is, is brought to Israel attention, Israel's attention there, or in that case, Judah's attention, is there the, the, what was happening is that they came back into the land and instead of focusing upon worship of their God, instead of focusing on rebuilding the temple as they were called to do, as God provided for them to do, they were all focused on doing their own thing. They were focused on building their own houses. They were focused on taking care of themselves first and then giving God the leftovers. And what did the Lord say? He says, because you put your houses first before my house, you're, uh, you're, you're basically your pockets, your money bags are full of holes. The money goes in and it doesn't stay in there. You're struggling financially. You're struggling to make ends meet. Why? Because you 
got the wrong priorities. You, you look after the Lord's things first. You won't have to worry about the material things of this life, not to mention the spiritual and emotional and all of that. The Lord will take care of you and will prosper you to the extent that he knows is good for you. Your, your pockets won't have holes. The money will stay there so you can use it. But So here, this is a familiar thought. And really, of all of these uh, judgments, this is just getting warmed up. Because then we get to uh, verses... Uh, uh, oh, let, let me talk about verse 3. Interesting thought here. They shall not remain in the land of Yahweh... But Ephraim, again, using that tribe name as to stand for the northern kingdom, shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So they're going to be scattered. Uh, returning to Egypt is, um, I mean, there may have been some that literally went back to Egypt and, and there were some that did. Uh, but most were carried away into exile into Assyria, right? And Babylon. Um, Assyria primarily. But that returning to Egypt is metaphorical for returning to bondage. When Israel, anytime it talks about Israel going back to Egypt in the prophets, uh, pretty much it's, it's saying you're going to be in bondage again. You'll be slaves again. They're going to eat unclean food in Assyria. And then we get to verse 4. So we have that part of the, the prosperity is gone. They've got to go somewhere else. They're going to eat. They're going to be forced to eat unclean stuff elsewhere. And that, by the way, uh, that might uh, make you think of the book of Daniel, where Daniel and his friends are commanded to eat the king's meat. I mean, here in Assyria, it's not talking about, you know, eating stuff that's got dirt on it. It's talking about stuff that was unlawful, unclean for them to eat. And certainly um, in, in uh, Babylon, that, that uh, same idea was there, right? As the Babylonians wanted the exiles to eat their meat that was offered to their idols, as well as, I'm sure, there were unclean things that were there, ceremonially unclean things that they were called upon to eat. Anyway, look at verse 4 then. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to Yahweh. Their sacrifices shall not please him. Now, this is not talking about uh, just that they're not wanting to worship him and that their, their sacrifices are an abomination to him. There's plenty of that that goes around uh, in other of the prophets. But I think in the context here, it's basically saying the reason that their sacrifices aren't going to please him, the reason they're not going to be pouring it out is because there's nothing to pour out. They're not, going to, they're not going to have even the means or ability to offer sacrifices in the way that they were doing in Jerusalem, and that was certainly the case. Because they'd been brought under bondage to others. Their enemies would destroy them um, and, and, and disrupt everything that they uh, were doing, even the things that, that on the surface were righteous, uh, they would not be able to do them. The, their bread would be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it should be defiled. Their bread should be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. 
They're just going to be subsisting. Everything that they that they uh, uh, valued in their culture when it came to religious services uh, in the house of God would be undone. It would, would no longer happen because enemies would come in. Their prosperity would depart from them and enemies uh, would take over their lives. What will you do? In verse 5, on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of Yahweh. What were they going to do? They weren't in Jerusalem anymore. The temple would eventually be destroyed. What are you going to do on the feast days? How, how are you going to do this? The, everything that you value is gone. In chapter 10, verses 7 through 11, Samaria's king shall perish. Now, Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. The king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, where they, they sinned with uh, the inhabitants of the land, you have sinned, O Israel, there they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, he says, I will discipline them and nations will be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Israel, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Kind of a, the Lord's, the Lord's version of what Pharaoh said to Israel. You're going to keep doing the bricks, but now I'm not giving you any straw. You're going to have to figure this out on your own. And it was a frightening, a frightening prospect. Um, their enemies would destroy them. In verses 13 through 15, more of the same. You've plowed iniquity. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. All your fortresses shall be destroyed. One of the judgments that are going, would come upon Israel, and certainly this would literally take place in the exile. But there's a spiritual lesson here as well, is there not? Both for Israel in their hearts and for us in ours. It would be very easy for us to erect all kinds of fortresses that protect ourselves, protect our thinking, protect our image, protect our ego, protect our sense of control, protect our our sense of power and enablement and knowledge and all of that protect ultimately our pride. And the Lord will bring us to the end of ourselves, just as he did Israel, putting down all the high places, all the places of worship, all of the fortresses came to nothing. And away they went into exile, a suffering and affliction. That's a terrible prospect. In chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of Yahweh shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. 
the judgment that God brought upon Israel because of her persistent rebellion against him, her persistent unfaithfulness against him, was to dismantle them as a nation, to scatter them among the nations, to be under the heel of the oppressor, and uh, to the point of not just uh, mere things like taxes or, uh, you know, draconian rules, but to the point where uh, the children, the, the next generation, were destroyed. You know, I think of, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, maybe I should save it. In fact, I will. I will save it. It's, there's so much that's interwoven here, it's hard not to, to go into it. When we get in, uh, to uh, the fourth point down, we'll, uh, we'll, take a look, we'll follow up on a thought there regarding the children. But enemies will destroy them. Enemies were going to destroy Israel, and they did. And the enemies of your soul will crush you if you walk in rebellion against the Lord. But you think, well, you know, we've, we're religious. We've got our, you know, our spiritual leaders. We've got those that teach us. Um, look at this other aspect of judgment here that's in chapter 9. Verses 7 through 9. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. And then some remarkable words. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Uh, because of, and not ang that's not angry, but he's lost his mind. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred, the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. One of the judgments upon Israel was that where there was no vision, the people will perish. God removed his spirit from among them, put lying spirits in the mouths of the prophets, so that the prophets that were there, the priests that were there, those that should uh, be the ones to help call them back to righteousness and, a, and wisdom and a right path before God and obedience, were the ones that were leading them further and further astray. They had no safety net, in other words. When you think about this country... Uh, and the abundance of voices that are out there declaring, thus says the Lord, that have no concept of what the Lord's actually said, right. that deny his word, and yet people drink it up like it's the best thing since, I'm mixing my metaphors here, like it's the best thing since sliced bread. You don't, you don't, don't drink sliced bread, but you understand what I mean. They, people love it. They love error rather than truth. Uh, we live in a day where people heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears. They, that they're looking for people that will tell them what they want to hear. And the Lord's judgment is, fine, you can have them. It'll take you further into darkness, further into judgment, further into the consequences of it. Um, when I uh, was looking at this passage, uh, verses 7 through 9, um, did my own translation on this. Um, 
that I, I think brings out some additional things that might be helpful. Uh, the days of punishment have come. You could read it. Days of retribution have come. Israel realizes that the prophet is a fool, that the man of spirit is a lunatic on, the, on account of the greatness of his own perversity and hatred of God. The watchman of Ephraim is against God instead of serving him. The prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways, bringing enmity, a wrath of God to the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their wickedness. He will punish their sins. The Lord is not mocked when we rebel against him. He was not mocked when Israel did. And uh, Israel had tickled their ears with the prophets who told them that all was well. We read that in the book of Ezekiel chapter 13. They they have seduced, these false prophets, have seduced my people saying, peace, when there is no peace. So now Israel knows that those were false prophets, but it's too late to undo the damage. And the one who's to be the watchman, who's called a spiritual man, is seen finally to be nothing more than a madman, a snare, who ushers in by his false messages the wrath of God upon the people of his dwelling. They were deceived, but not innocently deceived. They were deceived because of their wicked determination to pervert godliness into their own design for pleasure and power. So God gave them over. I read this in Romans chapter 1, to those who were the reprobate, that those who exalted those things that were not gods and turned, said that they were, those who uh, turned uh, the perversity of, of man's heart into the standard of what was acceptable, um, and in every moral perversity that uh, category that can be mentioned there is in Romans chapter 1, and they're firm in their rebellion against him, and the Lord says, I gave them, I'm giving them over to their depraved mind and they will suffer the consequences for it. That's exactly what we're seeing here. False prophets would deceive them. Um, I've mentioned this before in other cases, maybe even in this series, but you know, we do, we live in a, in a society that's filled with all kinds of people who profess to be Bible teachers and, and, uh, counselors and helpers and and preachers and all those other things that are not preaching God's word. They're preaching the wisdom of man and saying it's God's word. <clears throat> uh, you can read all kinds of books out there that people keep publishing that are, are worthless, biblically speaking, and yet um, people lap it up. They want it. Uh, because it's the newest, latest, greatest thing that will help me explain away my sin and my accountability for it. And that's part of God's judgment, to keep them in the dark. Fast forward to the New Testament, to the ministry of Jesus Christ, when Christ was preaching to the people in parables. And people aren't understanding what's going on. 
Now, if I asked you what a parable was, you might think, I mean, you, you could probably all give me an answer. It's a story. Some people uh, do a, a clever little definition, which is fine so far as it goes. A, uh, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, yeah, there, there's that element that's true about it. Uh, some spiritual principle, heavenly concept that's that's set in a story of, the, of everyday life. But even in that case, what was happening as Jesus was preaching that those parables to the people? Were the people understanding them or not? They were not. And the disciples were asked, asked Christ, why do you preach to the people in parables? Because rather than just speaking right out here, thus, thus and so, it feels like a riddle. They've got to figure out the meaning of the story. And what was Jesus' answer? To them it has not been given to know. But to you it is, and then he would explain to them what the parables were about. Why would Jesus say that? Doesn't Jesus want them all to be saved? Doesn't, doesn't he want everybody there to, to turn and understand? If he had, he might have spoken differently. What Jesus was doing was fulfilling the promises of God in the Old Testament of what would happen to Israel if they turned their back on him and rejected him, that they would have ears but not hear, eyes but not see. It was part of the judgment upon Israel at that time. And until the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, there is still, Paul says, a veil over their eyes. It's part of judgment. It's right there. And it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. Now that doesn't undo statements like all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But as a general principle, when you rebel against God, he's going to close off your mind and heart until in such time he's ready to open it up and grant you repentance and grant you faith. In the meantime, it's not going to make any sense to you. And that was his punishment here. There were false prophets that would come and deceive them. The next section that we read, this is uh, uh, probably the hardest part to read. And this has to do with their children. And we look at this and think, well, okay, that applied to Israel. And coming up with an application for us um, might be a little more difficult. But let's, let's work through this a little bit, just a second. Keeping in mind that the promises to God, uh, of God to Israel... Um, often included as a centerpiece of those promises that the promises are to you and to your children. The whole concept of inheritance from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next was huge, a part of God's covenant promises. So keep that in mind when you're reading this as a judgment. God is saying, I'm cutting off the information chain, uh, the, uh, in, the, sorry, the inheritance chain. I'm, I'm, I'm putting a stop to that. There aren't going to be succeeding generations. But what is really tragic here is not only that because of the enemy nations that would come in and oppress them and rip open women and, and, and bash children against trees and so on, 
there's that ugliness. That's that that aspect of the judgment. But the other aspect of the judgment that is even more horrifying is that Israel, in their perversity, in their darkness, in their spiritual um, confusion and rebellion, would offer up their own children to the fires. And so we come to things like abortion. And we come to uh, the the incredible genocide that has taken place in this country and around the world. As people in all of their vaunted wisdom take the very thing that God delights to give his people for their joy. In fact, just, and not even his covenant people, but just people in general. And man in his perversity says, no, I know better. I'm going to kill him. It is just horrifying. They've offered their children to the gods of the heathen. Now God will no longer permit them to corrupt any more of his precious gifts. The joy of their lives they will stupidly offer to the murderer, it says in there in verse 13. And God will shut up the womb. God will prevent them from bearing children. Now, I, I thought about looking up the statistics about, uh, you know, children per capita in the United States and England and so on, as opposed to uh, some other places. But in Christian nations, um, it's below one per household, is the last I looked. Uh, there's not a whole lot of hope on a future for a nation that isn't bearing children. And for all of our technology and all of our uh, vaunted wisdom and power and position in the world and everything else, um, the atrocity of abortion is God's judgment upon us. And we need to repent. Finally, we read in chapter uh, 9 and verse 17, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him, they shall be wanderers among the nations. This, this kind of this draws all this together, and basically is he's going to disinherit them. Um, we know that from other places in Hosea and elsewhere that this is not absolute. There will come a day uh, when uh, when restoration, full restoration, will take place. But in the interim, during the time of of uh, rebellion. There's a rejection, and they will be cast out of the, their inheritance. Again, this should not have come as any sort of surprise to anybody. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, and verse 33, the Lord says, um, as, as, in re, as a result of rebellion against him, he says, I will scatter you against the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. I'm thankful that this was not an absolute uh, course of action that the Lord took. I mean, he would say later on that he would restore them, and we looked a little bit about at that last time. But 
You know, the Lord promises us blessing and peace and joy that he himself uh, and our Savior, uh, he is our inheritance. Do you ever wonder, are there times in your life when you feel like the Lord is far away, that your communion with him is minimal or non-existent? It's a good time to say, all right, how am I living? What am I, what am I doing before him? Because when, because when there's blessing, he delights to commune with his people. I will be your God. You shall be my people. I will dwell with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus said. I would hate to be disinherited by my God. And I'm not even, I'm not just talking about the hope of heaven. I mean, I can't even conceive of heaven, ultimately. I know it's going to be incredible, but in the here and now, I don't want to be disinherited from my God. I want to have communion with him. I want to have fellowship with him. I want to understand him. I want to open his word and, and know what's going on there. I don't want him to shut himself off from me because of my wickedness. I don't want to miss out on my inheritance. I'm not talking about losing my salvation. I'm talking about those who are in covenant, a covenant people with God who are struggling in fellowship with him because of sin. There are consequences as judgment in that relationship and the Lord will faithfully use judgment to smack us upside the head and get our attention so that we turn back to him. As we wrap this up this morning, um, I want to direct your attention over to chapter 13, if you will. Another really challenging, uh, uh, challenging, as in hard to read passage. Um, this judgment's going to continue. It speaks of it quite a lot there in chapter 13. He says, beginning at verse 7, I'm like to them a lion. I'm uh, like a leopard, like a bear. Uh, I'm going to lurk beside the way. I'm going to tear, tear them open. I'm going to devour them as a wild beast would rip them open. Um, I do not wish to be uh, in the hands of, of an angry God. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, warns us um, against the you know falling into the, the the wrath of an angry God. He destroys you, O Israel. He says, "You are against because you are against me. You're against your helper. Where now is your king? This king you want? This kings? All the kings that were going to save you? Where is he? He can't save you." Where are your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. He says, I gave you a king in my anger. You remember when God gave Israel a king with Saul? He was not happy. He was angry and said, all right, basically, I'm going to give them what they want and they're going to regret every minute of it. And it's come full circle now. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. 
Now look at verse 13. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Now, for some of you, this particularly ladies, this might be a difficult thing to listen to um, because of memories it might stir up. But here Israel is being compared kind of two-sided. In one way, kind of like from the mother's side of childbirth, and then the other from the, the unborn child's side of things. This is the language of miscarriage. This is about, uh, it, for all of Israel's promise, uh, for all the things that he could have been before his God, it all comes to nothing. Pangs of childbirth come for him. It's uh, so. I'm about to, you know, about to give birth. The promise of everything, and and yet it's hard. The pangs are there, but nothing is. The delivery is not taking place as expected. And then it flips to inside the womb. The imagery there, that as an unwise son, as a as as a unborn child that is not presenting himself properly in the womb to be delivered. And, and the, the imagery here, though, you know, we know in circumstances that, uh, that we have now that, you know, an infant's not sitting in the womb going, nope, I'm not coming out of here. I mean, there's jokes that are like that, right? Um, but it's not a conscious thing. But it, this is, this is, the Lord is, heightening the absurdity of Ephraim's actions. It's like a child, if, if, a, if, an, if an unborn child could think this way, would be sitting there in the womb, crosswise, hold his hands and feet out going, no, I'm not coming. God, you can't make me do this. You're not going to tell me I'm wrong. You're not going to tell me that I have to change my ways. You're not going to tell me that you're the only God to whom I'm devoted. Nope, not doing it. And the result is death. The result is destruction. But this is faithful judgment. This is what God said would happen to those who rebelled against him. Now, this sort of treatment would tend to get your attention. Don't you think? And once you were listening, God would have some important and wonderful things to say to you. I'm really thankful that this section isn't only about this. Because if it was, it, would be, it truly would be a hopeless matter. But this is the road to restoration. The Lord does his correcting work first. And then he will call, and you'll see this... Uh, as we look through chapter 11 and 14 and different passages throughout here, uh, the next steps on the repentance that he grants, calls us to and grants us, and then the mercy that he shows. So we'll finish here on a rather heavy note this morning. But uh, hold on to the, the more encouraging uh, news that this is not the entire story. That there is hope, there is mercy. 
because our God does not abandon his people. Again, remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to his covenant people whom he loves. So with that in mind, let us examine ourselves um, as we come to the Lord's table. Examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, examine the, the nature of our walk with Christ, um, whether we're living on in disobedience or whether we are striving by his grace to walk in obedience to him. Um, let's not go through the motions and subject ourselves to the judgments that come upon those who may look good on the outside but are rebelling on the inside. Let us return from our sins and trust in his mercy, the mercy that he shows to us by giving us the perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our substitute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this section of Scripture, which is so challenging and sobering. Lord, help us to take it to heart, to carefully consider what we're doing when we contemplate rebelling against you and walking in disobedience. Lord, let us humble ourselves before you. Seek you with our whole heart. Grant us repentance. Show us your mercy. And restore us to the joy of your salvation, Lord. I pray that the testimony of your people would be that we are those who strive lawfully to glorify you. And we pray that you would accomplish that in our hearts and lives. Uh, by your grace.